regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where we have a long time in the conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Vinod Chanda, the creator and project member committee chair of the Apache Hoodie Project, a seasoned distributed system database engineer and a dedicated entrepreneur. During his time at Uber, he created Hoodie, which pioneered transactional dialects as we know them today, as a way to serve unique needs of speed and scale for Uber's massive data platform. He has deep experience with database, distributed system, and data system panel scale, strengthened through his work at Oracle, LinkedIn, Uber, and Confident. Most recently, Vinod founded OneHouse, a cloud-native managed lake house to make data lakes easier, faster, and cheaper. So Vinod, it is my pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here, and I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it's so awesome to be part of one. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start our conversation a little bit all the way back to your educational background. So I found out that you study IT from Madras Institute of Technology back in Chennai, India, where you did some work on security models for multicast security in grid computing environments. So could you mind briefly going over your upbringing as well as your college experience back in India? Yeah, well, this goes like way back and I deeply appreciate the amount of research you put into your shows and it clearly shows here. Yeah, my undergrad, it's not a lot of interesting things, just the usual, typical Indian student entering technical engineering school. It was a very good school, lucky to be part of the Madras Institute of Technology engineering program there. Uh, It's called IT, even though it's basically computer science. It's and this is one of the biggest things I had to explain. And nobody stopped about my undergrad for a while, so I'm explaining it after a very long time. So IT means something really different in India. Like IT is basically computer science because of all the, the IT outsourcing companies, the service companies that you see there. So it's practically computer science. This is where I got my first exposure to distributed systems. And back then, this is before Hadoop, right? And if you remember those days, we called it grid computing. And essentially, there were so many awesome projects that were around open mosques. There was a project at Wisconsin or Purdue, I, I forgot, called Condor, I think. There are all these like scientific parallel computing, MPP sort of like things. I got exposed to a lot of them in my, like my final, my fourth my senior year there. And I actually started at it from a security angle on, hey, how do you run group video applications or essentially multicast applications on it? But by the end of that year, I was smitten by, oh, this is fun working with distributed systems, computers, 
talking to each other. We built the, I think the university's first real real-time application clusters. We used OpenMOSX and reimaged a whole bunch of machines that uh, people are happy about for us doing all of those things. Really fun exposures to this. And also, I think another very interesting project that I got the, the good fortune of working on was with the Indian Space Research Organization, the university designed a student satellite along with that. And I actually got to write the telemetry controller for that. So basically, it was so cool that I wrote this piece of code that would run in our sort of like satellite uplink station. Every day for a few hours, the satellite would be in contact. And then we would like download telemetry data every day. And to got to build up some, again, like all of these things made me appreciate network and how hard is that for two, two computers to connect over very unreliable networks and whatnot and do something meaningful. That's what I took away from my education, I would say, there. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. How do you get deeper into the domain of distributed system? I'm just curious when you say you found that this specialization very fun and very interesting, like what about it that you found very appealing to focus on? Is there other computer science areas? Got it. Yeah, it's just a little bit of a weird thing, but I learned to appreciate that three years happened and somehow getting these many computers cooperating with each other in the face of failures was really fascinating to me because, yeah, you, you can clearly achieve, you can scale out distributed processing. You can do a lot of amazing computing problems can be solved this way, but the infrastructure to make those things happen, a lot of them had to be abstracted here now. A lot of hard problems need to be solved. And there is a lot of logical thinking involved in it. I'm not actually super good. If I have to rate myself, I'm not on the analytical side. Maybe I'm not really great at numbers, but for me also personal level, I think I'm much, much better on the logical thinking, the critical thinking side of things. So for me, it was like a natural draw for me as well. Things like, as we'll probably chat about later, like Paxos, like consensus algorithms, all of those things were like very interesting to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for talking about the inclination towards logical thinking and, and appreciation for failure as well. So after you finished your college degree, you moved to the US and you pursue a master's degree in computer science from University of Texas in Austin. And I believe that you also did some research on high bandwidth content distribution and large-scale parallel processing with shell pipes. Yeah, how would you describe your overall graduate school experience in Austin? And furthermore, how did you become interested in some of this research area? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So Austin, obviously, a great school in a great city, stellar computer science program. And if you notice, I got to actually, again, I consider myself pretty lucky that I got to work on Two pretty completely different areas, right? One was the vehicular content distribution project where I stumbled on that from a course project actually that I did and then that the professor really liked it and I spent the summer in, in on campus. So I took that up on, I became an RA, started working on that as my thesis. The second one was actually, I worked, that was a work that I did with a researcher in Texas Advanced Computing Center. 
feels really fascinating. Again, with that same undergrad background, undergrad, we had what 200 computers linked to a network and we felt super awesome that we'd done something super amazing. Then I walk into TAC and there is a 8,000 core supercomputer that does crunches all the weather reports for, I think, all of the southern states, right? So, yeah. And then these researchers running massive MPP programs, parallel. So the fun story there was I landed in UT and I was, I really wanted to work on TAC and it didn't happen in my first semester there. And I ended up being like persistent and through the summer, I landed this and also a very cool mobile networking project. And I couldn't, I didn't want to choose. So I kept going at it. We ended up producing papers on both. And the thing that I, when I, they say that you cannot connect the dots in forward and only backwards. The funniest thing was 10 years after that, at Uber, I found myself in the same exact position where I was working on very big data processing on one hand and also leading Uber's mobile networking team that was actually working on pretty much the exact same problem, right? That fast moving cars, how can they have reliable network connectivity? That was the core of my thesis at Beauty. And I ended up actually leading 10 years later, the same two problem areas at at Uber in a very similar context, which is again, like vehicular content distribution. But yeah, it stumbled. One was my passion, one was my choice. And at the end of UT, I had choices to make. I could go deeper into embedded systems. That was, again, just to paint a picture, this was when there was no iPhone, right? I was writing on Windows Mobile, Windows CE, like all the older platforms for mobile. And so the whole mobile space to me was like really interesting. I wanted to see if I want to get on the Android team or the iOS team and be part of the next mainstream OISs, right? That's one. On the other hand, we did all this work in UT on around parallel processing, distributed systems. And again, like it it kept fascinating me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when I had to choose my job out of uh, UT, yeah, I ended up going with, I had the fortune of having these choices and I ended up picking, going to Oracle and work on databases, distributed databases specifically. And I think, yeah, from there, I think I've never looked back. It's become my career basically. Yeah. Actually, thanks for sharing the story in the context of this curiosity that, that you pursue in grad school. And it, it, it's how you just follow some of these interesting areas. You never know how yeah. the passion going to become beneficial later down your career. And it sounds like we talk about some of that and work the Uber later on in conversation. But kind of, yeah, like stepping back into that transition when you accepting that job right out of school at Oracle, you spent about two years there as a software engineer working on Oracle's database replication engine, high-performance computing, and stream processing. What were some of the valuable lessons that you learned from this first gig out of school? Yeah, I had actually spent work six months before my undergrad and my, like my grad school here in, but with six months. So I got some, I worked on a company called uh, Disha, which is a hedge fund. So working on trading systems, algorithmic training. And I got to implement some like Paxos style, like Kathleen's algorithms there. But Oracle was my real full-time, like longer term, like job out of school, right? 
So I got to learn, you know, Oracle database is like a really awesome piece of engineering, right? So I, you get, I got to learn so much in terms of writing production code around testing practices, release management. It, it's very easy to knock enterprise software and say it's boring, it's boring, whatever. But if you actually, from the inside, I got to see how much actually goes in to actually deliver something as stable. And people take oracles for granted, right? So Oracle database, yeah, it's like a safe for your data, right? If you put data in there, you can trust the thing with it. So I got to see the other side of, okay, what does it take? to build this level of mission-critical data systems. And a little bit of a more side thing is that I got also interesting, I would say, a startup-y kind of experience because two, three months in, I joined the Oracle Streams team. Uh, and then two months in, they bought our competitor, basically. So all for all three months, I kept hearing the team talk about a competitor. Three months in, they bought the bought that competitor which was golden. So for us, then I also got into seeing firsthand how MNA, like how this kind of like things go, navigating like a lot of uncertainty. And this is again like 2009, right? So with the recession and all of those things, so navigating a lot of uncertainty and also at, at a personal level. And also when they were merging both systems, there were like lots of performance optimizations, a lot of different like engineering work that interesting work that came out of that, that integrations. So I actually, so a lot of them were fast paced because of the, than regular, because of the nature of the MA and all of that. And I got to actually work on also building up my, hey, how do you deliver impact incrementally? How do you like plan, prioritize more big open-ended complex problems? So I got a good taste for also things like that. It, it, it was a pretty interesting experience, not a run-of-the-mill first job, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned that part about learning about navigating uncertainty during an acquisition and the challenges of merging new codes integration, new product into existing Oracle solution. Yeah, I, I'm sure like, you know, there's a lot of challenges with absorbing a completely new technical stack to the existing stack. Yeah. Oracle had really optimized the Oracle to Oracle native integration, like replication for a while mm. or like over a decade. And then Golden Gate presented, uh, it can do heterogeneous databases. It can move from Oracle to MySQL, sorry, SQL Server or DB2 or whatever. So it does like lots of different, even product level that we had to like understand a lot to be in that time and navigate that scenario. So I think again, I, Actually, I mean, it was, even though it was like, like stressful in some senses, maybe at times, but looking back, I consider that experience actually taught me a lot of things that I otherwise would not have been exposed to. Yeah, it sounds like to get out just the engineering mindset and also adopting a bit of that digital product-centric mindset. Right. Yep. Now, in late of 2011, you joined LinkedIn as a senior software engineer, working primarily on Voldemort. And this is a distributed key value store that can handle big chunk of traffic on LinkedIn and serve thousands of requests per second over terabytes of data, which I believe powers a lot of the main uh, products LinkedIn that, that we are well known for. Well, first of all, can you tell about your decision to join LinkedIn at that stage? And also, would you mind sharing a couple of the high level 
technical and operational challenges you encounter during both the development and scaling phase of Watermark? Yeah, so out of Oracle, I think I was mostly looking for an opportunity to work on an environment that was more faster based. So Oracle, you get to learn a lot of distributors, like fundamentals, you get a lot of these things. But like that was, if you look at it, the time when data was really exploding, right? The terms data science were all like coined during that period and companies like LinkedIn, Facebook, the, the whole like social and search like era out there. There's like lots of going things going on and scale out distributed data systems. So I wanted to work on something like that in an environment, in a more consumer facing environment where I would kind of be able to iterate faster. Uh, with enterprise software, you obviously can move only with some speed. So that was my primary uh, motivation. And as you, uh, again, 2011, you didn't have DynamoDB or Spanner in the world, Cloud Spanner in the world, right? You had either a data or DBMS or you had some caches like memcache and that's basically what you had. And every company, I think the big table and Dynamo papers have just come out, I think uh, a year before or something like that. And then pretty much Facebook was building Cassandra, HBase and LinkedIn was building Walmart. And uh, so in that sense, yeah, it was again, like super exciting. Walmart as was started by Jake Reps at LinkedIn and then he moved on to work on focus more on Kafka. So when we joined the team, Waldemort was serving 10,000 QPS or something like that. And when I was leaving, I think that, and that was 2014, we'd managed to scale the system up to like 2.5 million or 3 million QPS. And then this is the period also where LinkedIn grew from maybe 80, 70 million members to like north of. 500 million, 600 million members with a lot more products and like a, a complete product revamp. It's the really the hyper growth phase of LinkedIn. I would say my LinkedIn experience is what really hardened me in terms of my operational skills. I realized that it's not good enough to be just a really good engineering wise. You need to really understand the SRE function as well really well and then be able to actually work closely with them and own us a system as a service for the rest of the company. So that that whole angle is what I learned at LinkedIn. Walmart, we, we managed it as a, what what passes for like a cloud service today. Like we managed it as a multi-tenant service and then meaning our team would manage all the clusters. We would do the capacity planning. We would do multi-tenancy controls, quotas. So we guarantee a certain level of performance and throughput and latency to the rest of the company. And then we keep planning ahead for all the features we work with product. That was again a really awesome experience for me. And LinkedIn was parallelly building a newer database system, which is now I think what they use, which is Espresso. And since most of the effort was actually going towards Espresso, this Walmart team was like pretty small. It was like three people. And then, you know, I basically got to own the entire end-to-end retrace performance and like client monitoring. It was like awesome. Like I had like way too much responsibility probably for my pay grade at that point. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. I think I, it was a little bit daunting at times, but I looking back, I think I just, I after a point, I was like, I just want to make the best out of this. And then we ended up scaling Walmart really well, actually, for the company and technical challenges wise as well. 
beyond maybe Google at that point, I don't think any company had really scaled, maybe Amazon or Dynamo had really scaled key value stores to that level. LinkedIn, Facebook are all learning to do like scale, how to scale like distributed databases. So that was like really fun. There was, as you can imagine, tons of operational issues. There's so many mistakes I made in production. I was like two hours away from like taking down LinkedIn in share, like the new share articles. And I learned so many, I got burned so many times in production. I got so many scars and so many things I learned out of it. Introduction of new technologies, like today, SSDs are everywhere, right? Today, every most, lot of people back in engineers at least know RocksDB and then they understand like all these log structured databases. These were all like brand new, not in, in terms of in, level DB had just come out. There was just Berkeley DB if you want to look at embedded databases back then. So all these technology trends, like new storage engines on top of new storage SD, there are so many new technical things to learn as well. For example, we realized that once you make the disk faster, the or like the bottleneck shifts to CPU and garbage collection because the SSDs were so fast and all of the code was like fine creating objects till that point because the old the spinning disks were very slow, right? Once you throw an SSD in there, your latency goes from tens of milliseconds to like a microsecond, then your bottleneck is on CPU. So they're like very interesting things that, that we learned in also that whole like hardware as the hardware shifted. I consider those three years to actually be like when I really learned production, like on how to actually shoulder that responsibility for a company like LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for talking about the period and the skill learnings. We're picking up new technologies as well as understanding the, some of the operational burdens, writing production level system. And I was curious what happened with Voldemort after you left and what's the state of that project? I think there's maybe a few large open source users out there today, but I don't think LinkedIn runs it anymore. I think they migrated it out, out to that new database system that they were building. For us, I think towards the end of my time there is where I started looking for newer things to fix as well because Walmart was in like a really good shape, right? We, at that point, we either had to add more features to Walmart beyond the simple key value storage. The simple key value storage, it can do really well. It can give you across all stores we are able to achieve even at that QPS, less than a millisecond P95 and stuff. So we really operated really well. So now you have to either introduce new query types, maybe do range query support, uh, things like that, introduce transactions, or you, you have to really like extend the database at that point. And, but LinkedIn had already made the choice to build a newer system. And then there was like a team working on it. So it is pretty much reaching end of life. And, and that's actually how I, I was trying to do the private cloud project that we had at LinkedIn, because the idea there was we have managed to run Kafka and Voldemort well here for the company but uh, the user onboarding experience is not it's, it's basically wiki pages and Jira tickets so how can we like build and, and there is no elasticity there right we still you have to file tickets to SRE teams and approve it that approach there's like a lot of like manual provisioning these kind of things so the idea there was okay what does it take to build a like a public cloud like experience for what it was back then. But 
for all the LinkedIn data infrastructure services internally. I was, that, that was the idea. I think it was a pretty good idea, I think, but it didn't, at least we started the project, we built the first version out, but my heart was actually with data infrastructure. I wanted to build the next data system. And then that's where actually I decided to leave LinkedIn. Thanks a lot for talking about that experiment, building the private cloud LinkedIn. And it sounds like you learned nothing or two about what are you, what your interests are, right? Cause you mentioned a bit that you want to dive deeper in, into the, the database, data architecture, that actually with your career. After LinkedIn and a brief stint working at Box, you joined Uber in late 2014 as a founding engineer on Uber's data team and architect of Uber's data architecture. Why did you decide to make this career transition? So, yeah, like I mentioned, I was looking for the challenge on the data side and I went to Box actually because they had plans back then to build Google suit or like Office 365, like an entire suit of real-time collaborative apps. If you notice, they have box notes project so i joined that team and then the idea was oh we'll build a new database backend like a real-time collaborative block-based editor like what with notion today right so i was pretty excited to go work on operation transforms build like a real-time or a fire-based database backend to power all these different apps i thought this would be like a cool project the cloud service like Box makes the best of both worlds, right? It had the operational aspects of it. I think I, I create faster on a managed service, and I took, but it was also selling that to real customers, not just internal customers like LinkedIn, but also selling it like software over the wire to companies out there. And yeah, it was like super exciting for me there. But unfortunately, I think company decided to not pursue funded project in a that way that to this date they only have box notes and since that project was scraped and pretty much after, like that that took a lot of the original scope that i was planning to change my edition there and then actually then i started interviewing again i wanted to get back the data distributed data infrastructure kind of space so that's where i thought i belonged incidentally I knew about Uber, but I was actually interviewing with Snapchat in, and I was taking, and then for my interview, they gave me like a Uber coupon to take a ride from the airport to, they were in Venice Beach in, in LA. And I think I would have been the 15th engineer in Snap working on the first full-time infrastructure hire, not just data, but like cloud and like the whole thing. It was like very interesting, exciting times there as well, but I took an over and then I was like instantly fell in love with the product. I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And now tying back, I had spent nights and weekends and all of my RA time driving around cars and optimizing all sorts of mobile communication and these kinds of things. Yeah, that and then the fact that they, I think I don't know how to explain the magic of Uber's product. So yeah, I instantly fell in love and I was like, I should look at Uber. And then I actually went and spoke to Uber. I also spoke to the likes of Airbnb and like other companies. But for me, what was really interesting about the Uber opportunity was it was a blank slate, meaning like they just had some Python scripts, like a vertical warehouse and that's it. And then I could see how the company and the product could evolve and what all interesting real-time challenges and 
all these things that could actually throw up, right? Like these challenges could come in and I felt I want to be a yearly member on this ground floor opportunity at Uber. And that's actually how I ended up picking Uber. And I wanted to actually have the opportunity to build the data architecture for a very large company, large business and shoulder a company level responsibility. And then something that will make the technical decisions at that kind of level. And that was like a great opportunity for me. Absolutely. I'm curious, in 2014, what was the state of Uber as a business? And also what was the state of data architecture of Uber when you first joined? Just to cut a pain. Yeah. Yeah. I think Uber was booking multiple billions and gross bookings already 2014. And I was, I think, less than the first 200 engineers there. And at least all of the engineering would fit in one floor when I joined. And then we're hiring really fast at that point as well. And then Uber moves really fast. Like they, they build like a lot of new products, like very quickly experiment. The company's DNA was like, they experiment a lot, things like that. So we were starting to feel that the yearly like pains around as you hire more people, as you build more product, there's explosion in data. All of that was beginning to be there. The data team was, I think, before I joined, there were three people before me. And two of them are working on this ETL system, which was Python, Celery queues, stuff like that to run ETLs on like Vertica, basically. And then we put out dashboards. And then people can query the warehouse or they can build some basic dashboards. That's basically where things were. I think... And just the interesting thing to understand is Uber is unlike LinkedIn, like they're very different. At LinkedIn, a uh, lot of the data challenges when we are around, because LinkedIn builds all these recommended products and things like that. A lot of the users were actually engineers for data. And then you had a smaller set of like analysts who would like optimize for sales. And LinkedIn, end of the day, is like a very large enterprise business as well, right? Not just ads. And it's a very, very like unique company in that sense. But Uber had a lot of people who are running cities and they're not like technical at all, right? They're like super smart. That's, that's not what I mean, but they're the very entrepreneurial. They can run with things. They would learn SQL and actually write SQL on the warehouse directly. But as you can imagine, the writing like performance SQL on a warehouse is not a, like an easy thing. So we had to actually be, the data team had to be the this buffer between all the engineers were building products, producing data, and all the operations folks who are consuming the data and making sense of what's going on. And Uber would, as like the strategy was optimized city by city, right? Hyper local would run like local campaigns specific to each city. And that was like very unique. And then it meant that we had to in build data as a product within the company. I know like we talked gets talked about it a lot. We didn't call it all this back then, but like we had to build as if we are building to an external audience of end users within the company. And the infrastructure was nowhere like close to where we wanted to be, right? Because all we could do was store data in a warehouse. So we, so the, my first year there was pretty much doing all the basic things, right? I introduced uh, upgrade our Kafka versions, introduced like database things capture, make log event collection very reliable, scale Kafka across multiple data centers, 
and, and Uber, even then we wanted to run on Uber entered China. So we, we were running in four data centers there, four in the US, we were running eight data centers. And then we had to now deal with like DR, how do you merge data from every place consistently? All kinds of like issues early on. So we designed the first one, one and a half years was just designing these things. And we got to a state where, okay, we could, people could do stream processing using Flink or I think back in the day, it was like Samza or something. And uh, you could, there's a basic Haruk cluster with some hive tables and you could do run Spark. This is Spark 1.3, by the way, like it's very old. Everything was just coming up, right? Mm-hmm. And we actually managed to scale it to a point where, okay, we could store a lot of data on the Haruk cluster and then we would ETL something into Vertica, which will actually give us the performance for reporting and then all the other use cases would stay there. We managed to make it work, I would say, and actually arrest this problem. We also focused a lot on the productizing part that I talked about, which is building the equivalent of schema registry in house at Uber. There is a very easy way as a Uber engineer, you show up, you go write a schema for the data that you want to produce, punch a button, the Kafka topics, the tables all get created for you, data is flowing in. And we built all these services that can now manage those tables. You don't have to come and hand you a bunch of things. So we really built a layer of abstraction between the engineers and the end product, the city ops people. And they could just have conversations at the high level and not be dealing with an ad hoc data requests and like debugging queries together or things like that. So that's like what the first one and a half years at Uber look like. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for getting that the picture You're serving as a layer between the data producer and data consumer. Like that abstraction allowed them to communicate better. So it, it sounds like you started Uber with the blank state and really doing the basic thing in the first year and then the evolution coming happening as the requirement requests become more, more impactful. Based on your experience building data infrastructure at Uber, in 2016, I came across this article you wrote on O'Reilly. Yeah. T- talking about, you basically argue that there's a need to add more incremental processing primitives to existing Hadoop technologies. And this is related to the part that you just mentioned your answer about some of the early technologies Uber used for stream processing and sort of the trying out new primitives, right? Yeah. Could you mind unpacking some of the most relevant takeaway from that? Yeah. So I think after we reached uh, like some sort of state of the art, okay, this is what everybody was implementing, but we'd actually managed to do it in a way at Uber where we can get really good streaming data latencies till the Hadoop cluster. And that's where we faced a lot of kind of impedance mismatch. So as you can see, I have worked already on batch data systems, if you will, where they're doing like a lot of so massively parallel data processing. As well as in Oracle and LinkedIn, I already got an exposed a lot to stream processing as well. And, uh, and with Voldemort, I already, you know, I've seen like pieces of all these problems before. So for me, uh, our key challenge on the takeaway of that article was, if you look at the programming model in stream processing, you consume an event or a new change that happened and you take the new change, propagate it through your computation. Let's say you're just counting the number of trips that happened every in every city for the last hour. 
Okay, new trip happens, you take it, you add it to a previous result, intermediate result that you have, and you publish and you value out. That's stream processing. That's how stream processing works, right? But if you look at how all of the Hadoop batch processing, and then by and large, they all maybe even work like that even today with even all these Lakers and everything. This is the part that we haven't spent a lot about and outside of Hoodie. It's like you periodically, the model was always periodically you would run a job, which will go bulk, read a whole bunch of files and then do some processing, write a whole bunch of files. And essentially there was no incrementality. So we basically thought, okay, if we take the programming model that we have in stream processing, which is new data arrives, how do you reconcile it into an existing intermediate result and emit changes outside? Can't we bring this on top of kind of horizontally scalable storage and compute, right? Which is like what YARN and let's say HDFS pro will provide you or today Kubernetes and S3 will provide you, right? So that was the key idea behind that article. And we called it incremental data processing to differentiate from stream processing, right? Because in stream processing, there's something continuously running and it's continuously streaming something, right? Here, the idea would be that you would still run on-demand horizontal compute, but they would run far more frequently and far more incrementally, where let's say every five minutes, a job would wake up and then it would go process new trips in the last five minutes and then update them onto uh, the trips table. Exactly like how the Oracle to Oracle or Golden Gate replication would work. You would replicate trips from here and then that's streaming. It'll keep applying it as it happens. But for analytics, it like we felt by, by doing this kind of like still sticking to this kind of like a mini batch kind of model, we get a lot of efficiency because we can write data in columnar formats, yeah. which has improves query performance a lot. I actually thought you, you don't get many problems in computer science or in databases where you get to reduce costs and also make things faster. Usually in databases, you throw money at it to make it go faster, right? In this scenario, the existing old school batch processing was so like so naive and like very rudimentary and unoptimized that we could actually just incrementalize all of it and we are actually able to save millions and millions of dollars for the business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for some motivation behind Adaptionical even incremental processing. In that same article, you also have a section on some of the challenges with incremental processing and trade-off between completeness and latency. There's a shipping mindset, and, and most important is there's a lot of primitives for incremental processing. And to fulfill the vision from that article, uh, I came across this talk that you gave at Data Castle back in 2017 about later renamed like hoodie, but in you. Yeah. And this is an open source incremental processing framework built Uber to enable faster data for petabyte scale and data analytics. So continuing on the thread that you just mentioned from your previous answer, can you go over the initial design and implementation of Hori across the Hadoop ecosystem at Uber? Yeah. So just staying off of what we were talking about, I think we distilled all of that, just three things that probably we need to build. Essentially, we wanted to build the ability to transactionally update or like actually mutate data in tables, right? This would be very similar to what stream processing state stores would do. If you look at Flink or 
Spark streaming, all of them have state stores where you can take a new record and then like incrementally apply update, right? So we have to build that and also the ability to emit the change to for downstream processing, which which is change streams and change capture. So we essentially designed, started designing Kuri as a database abstraction. So this is basically, we thought this is a database problem. We take HDFS and we build a transactional database layer on top. And instead of rebuilding the query engine, right? We didn't want to build one more query engine right from scratch. We said, okay, like at that point you had Hive, which is really good for really large batch jobs and say like reliability is the main thing, not speed. And we had Spark, which was really picking up a lot of steam and data science and generally starting to eat into the ETL space. And then you had Presto, which, you know, is really good for interactive query performance, right? So we picked Design Hoodie as this layer and then integrated this into being queryable from all these three different agents. And that's how Hoodie was designed. And I think, yeah, we can cover, talk about this later, but from there, I think it's evolved, taken its life out of its own in the Apache Software Foundation to like grown into what it is today, but that's how we began. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for going over the context a little bit. 2017 is when the project got open source. And so between 2015 and 2017 is the time where it's the initial ideas is incubated like in-house, right? We actually incubated the article. If you notice, came out 20, 2016. By 2016, we were already actually building it in. By end of 2016, Uber's core, the, okay, we would ingest external operational databases into a set of hoodie tables on the lake. Then we would incrementally transform them into more derived, your regular fact, dimension, star schema kind of tables. Also incrementally, this thing was being done for all the core critical business critical data sets by end of 2016. Then we thought, okay, I think this feels like a, oh, it's like a general purpose problem that most people have. And then we, we like outsourced the project very early 2017. So that we can start building it out more in open source. And yeah, we had used, till that point, we had used so much software from Apache Software Foundation to build out like Kafka and Parquet and Spark and whatnot. So we wanted to also give back to open source. So that, that was why we you know, open sourced it very early on that time. Yeah. So it was open source that even by over in 2017 and eventually Hoodie was incubated into the Apache Software Foundation in 2019. Now, my question is twofold. First, could you mind walking through the evolution of Woody throughout this period, building in public? And second of all, what lesson have you learned about establishing standards for open source dev projects? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So actually, I would love to tell you that our 2070 open source, everybody instantly got it. That was not the case, actually. So when we originally did that, what and we we had a lot of these internal conversations inside Uber as well because like Hadoop and like people had gotten used to immutability on the lake and then when we said okay you can now update things it wasn't like really if you read the crossing the chasm book like they talk about the, the visionaries and how it grows we actually had mostly the visionaries in 2017 who are all like thinking okay I have a database change capture problem and I'm going to take the extra step to go and 
like optimize the solution. They were like looking for innovative solutions. So a lot of that happened in 2017. And then we were actually slowly getting the software to also run outside of Uber's infrastructure in a more general purpose way, like decouple, like all of those things. It got also sanitized and hardened that way. And 2018, I would say there's a lot more community adoption. The thing became a lot more generally usable. Things grew to a point where in 2019, people felt like, okay, wait, this is like a storage system. And we don't, we want neutral governance for the project because like if we adopt this, we're going to put all of our company's data into this thing. So let's, so that's when we realized, okay, the right way, right place for this is the Apache Software Foundation where there are like strict norms and rules and like a lot of existing established practices to ensure projects are governed in a kind of like a vendor neutral or in a fair inclusive way. So that was a journey about the incubation itself. And in terms of standards, I think, yeah, it's a very interesting question. What we realized actually was that when we implemented this, I mentioned that, for example, that we integrated into three engines, right? So what we saw was there wasn't really like a good standard API or anything that you would, all of these engines would support. Then you can be like, go change that one thing and they all recognize a new table. It wasn't there, right? Today, I think the situation is slightly like better. But even today, there is no real standard per se. Each engine has their, like they, they have better APIs, individual APIs. But that is the other thing that we SQL language level, even there is like more standardization now than what this was before. But beyond that, everything is pretty like non-standard. And then everything is like a more, you know, that, that's where we felt. And we tried to, so to that end, this needs, it's not a problem that we can solve by ourselves, right? We'd happily participate in any standardization effort. But uh, to that end, what we've done in Huri, as we build it, we try to actually take this integration pain out of the users. We try to build a lot more platformization into the product, make it like easy to get started. We build also not just the, the deep transactional layers, but we also make some upper level applications that like a streaming in just application or ETL app, like things like that would make the overall end-to-end use case easy in Huri as well. I want to follow up on your answers with two extra questions. So the first part about the idea of crossing the chasm from the Uber to eventually got into the Apache Software Foundation, you mentioned how do you try to keep it like vendor neutral? Because I suppose that at the beginning, a lot of people associate Huri with Uber, but yeah, like can you tell more about like how do you actually make the project to be vendor neutral? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Got it. Even today... If you generally look at the governance structure for Apache, I don't think we, we do anything very special. Like a lot of this credit should go to the ASF. There are, there is like governance in place where there's a project management committee and there's like a PMC chair. The PMC chair reports to the board. And the, if let's say, for example, somebody thinks uh, a particular cloud vendor is getting preferential treatment or something like that, then they can actually go and Raise it up with the board and we are accessible. And the software, the licensing, all of that is owned by the software foundation, not by any individuals. Mm-hmm. 
and there are lots of cases for of even individuals and PMC members being asked to leave if they violate the code of conduct. So Apache is like pretty, pretty strict in enforcing these kinds of things. So that there is that right, but and also the way you make decisions in open source, if we if this kind of central governance model, everybody gets to vote on, vote and make a plus or minus one decisions on it. We have out of the, I may not get the exact number right, but out of the, let's say, the 15, 16, like PNC members, let's say one house art company just has four, right? So it's not, even though like, oh, one house the hoodie company, we don't control the project or anything in any way. There are PMC members from other cloud providers, other large technology companies out there. So let so we can't go there. Just be, as an example, we can't just go and make a code change. And let's say we can't go and reject a, another PR just because we are commercializing that exact functionality in our product. And then we don't want to like not have it in open source. And this kind of thing won't pass muster. So there's like a lot of practices like this that, that help the community advance and keep the spirit of open source, but also checks and balances to make sure that the project is not cannibalized by one particular vendors or companies. Yeah. Thanks for talking about that governance structure and to, to make sure that the project stay fan and neutral. And then you mentioned about the change with open standard a little bit and Hoodie already did the lab work for the users by doing the integration already so that the users can just leverage that. Just looking a little bit in general, big picture of open source standard, like what do you hope? to have in that space? Was there any other project that you think doing a good job or was any best practices that you think can make open standard more reality? So I would say there are some good projects in the data space. For example, the open lineage project tries to define a more standard open protocol for lineage because if you look at data lineage, what happens is many parts of the company can adopt like different systems, but the thing is only useful if you have lineage holistically, right? So there are efforts like that and open telemetry is a great one, right? As you know from, like it's not in the analytics space, but it's still in the like uh, data collection sort of like ecosystem. I feel, again, so my background also, I've also been like on the backend OLTP side of things, not just on analytics. I always felt like, let's say JVM, right? JVM is a standard, correct? Like it's a standard, so many vendors can implement the same standard. That's what standards are supposed to be. I think in the data land, I've seen that standard being loosely used to refer to, oh, I'm a popular project, right? The, like for example, like Kafka is a very popular, like a really popular pub system, right? But it's not per se the standard. Like it's, it's the most popular implementation. And maybe the Kafka protocol could be standardized. So I don't see a lot of like, standardization efforts that way like talking looking inward to let's say hoodie and and now i wish let's say okay pre-hoodie right now now there is like hoodie delta lake and iceberg and like the three projects like in similar spaces with very deep technical differentiations maybe but similar-ish some sorry some parts are similar you know, if you look at it, they all serve metadata, like it's all done in different ways. Before 
this before the transactional, like all of this, we had Hive, which everybody knocks on, but it wasn't really standard, but there's something there where it clearly pro provided an abstraction between writing data and then you can read that table, correct? If you, I, I wish like when people talk through standards, uh, this visual thinking and all like maybe, but people actually talk about standards and separate, not use it in a marketing sense and be like, oh, after de facto standard for something. That I think causes a lot of fragmentation, in my opinion. Just to take you through this mix, right? There are three, let's say, storage systems. And now you need to integrate this with, you know, some five engines. And then each of these things support some a snapshot query, a, like a time travel query, a incremental query like three, four query types. If you just explore this matrix out, these are the number of combinations that people have, right? To deal with. With Hive, there was one query and five engines. And that's basically it. You're like five things. Now you have 50 things in some sense. So looking back, maybe even like critiquing myself, I think maybe we could have done more to make things more standardized. But that's basically why I think in a nutshell, I feel the standardization efforts, there are some healthy ones, but there isn't enough of that standardization in the data space. As much as you find it the, on the backend side, any framework can speak REST, right? REST is, you know, some things are standard. They can all talk to each other in some common language. That, that, that isn't there here. Thanks for walking through that. The question of open standards. So throughout your for unhappy as Uber, you also have scale engineering processes and hone operational excellence across various areas of engineering to ultimately keep Uber available and reliable while engineering grew from 200 to more than 4,000. So what were some of the valuable leadership lessons that you absorbed during this period? Yeah, Uber was a really fun kind of like experience. And I think I realized that there's a lot more to like engineering leadership as well, purely as even if someone just an IC role. Yeah, I think the biggest thing we were able to translate a lot of the operational best practices, like and keeping, and not just to keep like uptime and availability and everything, also to keep your team happy and sustainable practices. Like during big call, don't deploy code on a Friday, not big changes, like leave things alone for the weekend and don't leave when if there's a lot of people like vacation time or whatever don't deploy right just do a code freeze there like plenty of kind of operational aspects that we translated and implemented it at scale and also tons of like execution lessons for me this was my first time driving projects and large initiatives that spawned many teams right i had to write roadmaps for that kind of affected like 100 engineers that scale being cognizant about also like understanding how to even scope those you can't make it per way like but also you need to make it uh ambitious enough you you're, like balancing all of that was like really valuable um and at the people level i think the biggest thing i learned at uber uh, because uber attract was a melting pot of some of the best engineering talent that's, you know, we had people coming from like Facebook, LinkedIn, Amazon, Google's like every really awesome company. But across all of them, 
one, one thing I saw was that it basically boils down to people. Like people really need to think that their projects are step up for them and they need to like, like sport that attitude. And I saw folks who did that really succeeded while some people with even like really great track record, like they've done like amazing things in the past, but like some of them, they were approaching Uber as a continuation of where they were before and didn't realize that this is a new mountain that they need to start climbing from the ground up. And some of them didn't do well as, as well as they could have. So I also, I also got a lot of lessons to not teach people. People can grow, place trust in people to grow. And also for myself, not to be complex and <laughs> if I do one project well, doesn't really mean that I'll do the succeed in that. Right? I, I learned that by watching. Thanks a lot for going over some of that lessons that you learned at Uber on both from a thinkable side as well as some of the operational and people level lesson. And I'm sure this valuable leadership lesson can serve you a lot in your current role, which a new startup I was talk about later on in your conversation. But before talking about the hoodie project in detail, I want to talk about your big period working at Confident as a principal engineer on the basic ODB project, which makes it easy to create even streaming application. Yeah, would you mind kind of explaining some of the, you know, the motivation to first draw Confident and also working on this project and just have a desire of it? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So joining Confluent, I think mostly was a addition. A lot of the LinkedIn crew, Confluent, we work very closely during our time at LinkedIn. So we can talk about it a little bit more. At that time, I'd actually wanted to start the start a, like some company or at least like work full time on Hoodie. Even back then, so I was like mostly exploring different ways. So I at least Confluent took me to a company where I was working on data infrastructure as a service in cloud. So I felt like okay, I'll at least get to know, learn a lot in terms of cloud data infrastructure while helping Confluent with these four with these things and also work with some of my older like LinkedIn colleagues again. That that's how Confluent happened. And uh, yeah, I landed right on the KSQL team. And KSQL was an already existing project. And essentially that was a SQL project where essentially you write SQL and it will translate into streaming SQL pipelines. But the idea with KSQL DB was on, which is having seen the streaming architect data architectures for the last four years. And most of this idea is should be directly related to J. And the thing is, there's a lot of complexity in the architecture, right? Typically, you need to run like a stream processing applications and then marry it with an external sync and then get like an application built into it. Like, let's say you are detecting fraud. You would usually do some computation to score, let's say, transactions for fraud score, and you would then need to serve it out. In a, into another database so that you can build an application where, let's say, customer service reps or somebody looks at these transactions and they can flag them and they can score them, look at them more. That's how a typical fraud application pipeline looks like, right? 
the idea with ksql was okay what if we build one system that can actually do all of this it understands streaming data as a first class citizen and can also now unlock like very interactive and, and these kind of like real time OLTP applications that you build and to, to that end essentially we made a rebrand of the project and introduced a lot of database features in ksql like for example serving it we like initially the initial version it was behaving more like a key value store so you, and uh, it reported on range queries so basically some no sql kind of store where you can write and then it you could do all of this in sql you could write a sql to define your computation then you could write sql to query the data and then just in just one system packaged together that that was the main basic idea behind ksql and i think we call it a streaming database and now i think with materialize and also flink there's a lot of effort similar efforts around this at flink there's actually like a category technology category right now on this yeah this is also you you be able to expand your knowledge about the whole streaming data application system just by working at a conference and be at the forefront of this technology and i think like there's a long way to go this so it's still green field in my opinion where by and large if you look at microservice architectures today they use a queue like kafka or pulsar or uh, rabbitmq or something like that and marry it with another database correct and then most of the applications are built like that where your microservice has its own database to insert the tables and then it will notify another service through the, these queues so the streaming database idea is how can you abstract the, a queue on a database into a single system mm-hmm. and so now like reduce complexity in your microservice so that is the north star and there's like lots of work to be done to get to that part perfect yeah and i think that's also might be relevant to to my next question which tie that expand up like even streaming that way with some of your current work with hoodie throughout this whole period after even leaving uber and spend time at confluent you continue be part of the apache hoodie project so pmc and working on it in july 2021 you wrote this very in-depth article articulating the vision for apache hoodie and describing it as a streaming data lake platform built out of database kono Can you elaborate on this notion of the streaming data lake platform? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. If you look at it, like initially when we covered even the motivations for the data processing and everything, right? So what we are really trying to do was build the streaming programming model, which is to do everything small incrementally, consume new input, compute new output uh, incrementally with the batch data infrastructure, which is tables living on top of their lake storage in cloud or hdfs on prem being accessible to all these different lake engines like spark presto like hive like trino and what not so i think we still makes a lot of design choices across the board towards this enabling this pro- like the higher level programming model when we initially t- build hudi we call it a transactional data lake so that is talking about it at the storage level what hudi provides is like the technical capabilities it provides transactions for you it, it acts like a database on for you on the lake 
But what we want to build are, and we built a ton of them already, are lots of platform components on top of this like core transactional layer. And end to end, you'll be able to build these incremental or like this kind of streaming, what we call the streaming data lake. For example, if you look at the hoodie stack that we put out in the same article, right? It goes like layer by layer and explains this. So at the lowest layer, you have cloud, like lake storage and like open file formats like Parquet, H-File, ORC, uh, Abdo, what have you. And what Hoodie really provides is the transaction layer on top. So it provides a way for you to organize your data in and tracks schema versions. It, it tracks partitioning. It has a lot of metadata around what are your file lists, like what file listings and things to scale access to this table. What is like the table format layer, if you will. Essentially, encode every information about a table in a very scalable, accessible way, right? But beyond that, we already provide advanced concurrency control mechanisms. At this point, some seven or eight index indexing mechanisms so that you can quickly update the data, right? Because that's so key to the incremental programming model. And then we are also building out server components, like going back to the same analogy, right? Like a raw like a state store or RocksDB or any embeddable state store in stream processing would have some kind of cache to accelerate uh, the merge process and all of that, right? So we're building like a caching service. We're building a meta server. All these like platform components are also built and together they are the database layer as we will. It supports a lot of readers and writers in standard SQL or programmatic interfaces. We define keys all different kinds of like queries and like writers are supported. And then we also have a whole bunch of what we call platform services on top, which is streaming ingestion. Like you can, there's a single command that you can run where you can point at a, like a S3 bucket or a Kafka topic or a, or a database and you run that and then you will get pretty tables built for you. Right. So this is the platformizing part of the technology as well. See, we've not just built the core, the database kernel to do all this like one stuff, but we want to unlock the upper level use cases. And where I think the project stands today, if you ask me, is we were think successfully like made incremental data ingestion the norm and the de facto way of doing things on the lake today. If you look at starting from Uber, Robinhood, Walmart, Amazon.com, Zoom that you're on right now, and all of them have used Hoodie and I'm pretty like Philips and G. I'm leaving out so many large enterprises. Yeah. Pharma companies like AstraZeneca, like all of them have used to stream sort of data in very quickly into a lake and Hoodie can absorb all these updates very quickly. And we also platform, and most of them use these platform services, right? Directly. They're not building custom integrations and stuff. It's not a, so that, that's the vision in the streaming data platform vision. We want to continue contributing to hoodie and to make it like a, a place where a project that you can start with and it gives you deep technology, but also gives you all these different like bells and whistles that you can easily go to production with. And that is the mission that, that you're painting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for going over all the details in that piece. And also thanks for stepping to each layer of the hoodie stack that 
you described in that post, and I'll be sure to include the image of the stack into the show notes as well. And listeners and readers can take a look and learn more about this design of the project. Just out of curiosity, out of these 11 different layers of that stack, which they, I guess, the most challenging to, to build top of mind for you and the creators. Yeah, definitely a lot of the deeper database challenges are around indexing and currency control, I would say. The table format layer is pretty, there are only like young, like few ways to do it. But concurrency control and indexes, there are like open problems there. For example, a lot of people, when we, when they talk about lake house technologies or like, that's kind of what the trade name for this technology is today. They compare it to databases, but, and when I say databases, like an Oracle, OLTP kind of database, right? But having worked on two, three of them, actually written code in those code bases, I can basically like be very confident in stating that these problems are very different. Specifically, writing to a database table is throughput problem. While writing to something like Voldemort was like a latency problem. You do millions of operations per second there, right? Like a data lake is not going to do a million, like million transactions per second. Oracle, if you look at those systems, they would, you know, do TPS. That's how they measure themselves, transactions per second. So these are very different systems. So the concurrency control and a lot of these different things have to be designed very differently. And that is where I feel stream processing is where we need to borrow more from for this specific type of database rather than this. And for me, I think I've been really fortunate also to have been, like you mentioned, a big part of KSQL and the streaming database story as well. Yeah. In the gap that we started from leaving over to starting one house that really cemented my kind of like pieces on this as well. Yeah. It's a really different problem, I think. And I also saw that you have published a couple of blog posts on this problem. There's a blog post that you wrote about like how concurrency control and there's also like a couple of blog posts on the Uri website about capabilities on, I think like multi-model indexing and asynchronous indexing to be exact. So it sounds like this is incremental updates that your team always try to improve as the product evolves. All right. This is the core essence of the product. I think when people compare these class of technologies outside, they usually write a table with integration, tick marks, like tick mark, X marks, like this. But for the things that stand the test of time or subtle design trade-offs like these data systems, where you operate, you optimize for more lock-free kind of concurrency control, then maybe you're writing a little bit more metadata, right? Another system which is optimized for, let's say, like batch pipelines could be just writing fewer metadata, but it, it may not be able to take on those many updates, correct? I think there are still so many subtle uh, trade-offs and technology challenges here in this space to solve. And that's also something that we look forward to contributing more and more to Huri. Huri's core essence will stay around how do we incrementalize every single batch job out there. That's the core mission for us. Yeah, thanks for emphasizing on that mission again. Talking about product updates, I believe that the Huri community is strive to deliver major release every two or three months while offering minor release every month. So my question is twofold. 
firstly, how should your team prioritize the Hoodie roadmap while developing an open source project? And then secondly, what have you learned about engaging the open source community? Yeah, like two b- pretty broad questions, actually. Roadmap planning, I think it's very interesting and it's actually very challenging also to do in a very distributed, you know, open source community way, right? That is why we have these official expectations set to the community and we try to do our best to hit them. So in terms of roadmap planning, again, going back, it's all very transparent. There is a devless, like usually there's a mailing list in which somebody starts a thread on, hey, look, we're going to do this big major release. What features do we want to talk about? Then there is like a debate around, hey, do we do this feature in this release or the other release? Do we sequence it this way, that way? Bulk of my job. And it just kind of is what uh, people think that it takes a lot to just do this coordination. Like my bulk of my job is to facilitate and sequence it, iron out and make things running smooth. There's agreement and alignment across these priorities. And then we can do it in a way that the releases are stable, high quality, delivered on time. And usually we have this discussion and then one, one of the committers or, you know, PMC members is nominated as the release manager. From that point onwards, the release manager has all authority, like to decide around the release. And I don't think I've ever overridden the release manager ever so far. It's basically the release manager's call, right? What typically happens, the development happens. As we talk, we have the 0.12 code freeze coming up next week, the release manager is going to make the call on when to cut the release candidate. And then once there is a release candidate out for the release, we put it out for voting in the community. People can vote plus one, minus one. If they think, oh, this is breaking my production. This is not good. Then we debate on those again. Sometimes, oh, is there a workaround? It's like a small issue. We categorize them. We try to have that discussion. By and large, we proceed when there are you know, the minus ones are resolved and there are like at least three plus ones or something like that from the PMC. And yeah, it's a pretty awesome collaborative process. It takes a lot of energy, time to put towards the community to deliver this as well. And yeah, what we learned is actually community appreciates all of this. That, that is what we appreciated. We do a lot around Hoodie community. We, there is tens of thousands of Slack messages that we answer in the last year. And then there's usually a PMC contributor or a committer, somebody who's we share the load every week to answer questions on Slack. We have north of 2,200 Slack members at this point, I think. And uh, we have people who can answer, use can support, report support issues on GitHub issues. Then there's a process to triage them, turn them into actual product technical JIRAs that we can fix later on, things like that. We've seen that a lot of times users, we get data engineers who are really good with SQL and Spark and Python and like cranking out data pipelines, but not necessarily with a lot of deeper database knowledge. So we try to also spend a lot of time in certain like cases, provide suggestions. We try to maintain a good fact that people can understand questions like, hey, I want good update performance. 
this is my workload pattern. What do we do? We try to keep it generally useful for everybody. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work, just interacting with these communities frequently. I believe that there's all community calls where people can host office hours to question. Correct. The weekly office hours uh, as well. And then we have a lot of support channels to this. And, and so far, we're not like, for us, one house, we're not. This is all like, sweet. that's the main thing. That, like, we will still want to keep a hoodie open. The community shouldn't see a lot of different changes. We're still keeping it. Yeah. So, a great transition. So, let's take up your engineering hat and put on your father hat. So, yeah. since January of 2021, you have been the father and CEO of a new startup called One House, which came up still in February 2022. One House is a cloud-native, fully-managed lighthouse service built on Apache Hoodie. Can you share the story behind the party in the company? Yeah, this is like a, a good one. For me, personally, this was when we started Hoodie back at Uber, it was like a pretty controversial idea. Right? It was like pretty much all the the traditional Hadoop people weren't happy that you're suddenly introducing updates into what was for 10 years immutable file storage. But as the thing gained more and more, like I got more validation, like you said, I went through the incubation project. It was pretty clear to me that this is the way forward for data architectures. And we saw that this is like a very powerful kind of new architecture that we can bring to the world. And this needed... And given how competitive the space is, like a lot of big players like Databricks, it was pretty clear that we wanted to advance the technology in Hoodie and also solve some, that opportunity to solve some real problems for the users out there. And for me, I was actually mentally ready to start or at least start working on Hoodie full-time, see where it leads in 2019. But I didn't have my, like, like, like the papers to like green card or anything to pursue and start a company back then. So actually my time has gone through in the one and a half years and all of these good people that I work with actually, you know, kind of wrote letters for me and then helped me actually <laughs> get a green card. And then we finally started the company in 2021. And those, I think. Two years was probably like very tough to navigate for us because of the pandemic. Like we lost, it basically sucked up all the free open source time. Like I just mentioned, all this community work, this was just weekends and nights for four years for us. So all of that dried up. So yeah, there was like a struggle to get to a point to start the company. But yeah, and the motivation, so why would we even do it, right? Beyond advancing hoodie and the tech, What's the, the problem state? What's the business problem that we want to solve? Because every company needs to have a business problem that they solve, not just technology, right? So what we observed in the four years of doing this kind of community interaction with Ethody is that, that that exact thing that I talked about. Most companies invariably start with a warehouse, which is pretty close, but it's fully managed, right? And then they pick fully managed ingest system. They essentially click buttons to get to a point where there is data in Snowflake, BigQuery, Redshift or something where they can write SQL on, right? And then build some dashboards. And usually after that, what happens is it starts to break down. Either cost starts ballooning, even at medium scale, 
you want to start a data science team and then none of this stuff really works well there. You need Spark and you need call your PySpark and all this other stuff to work, right? Then they start building out a lake. And then when they start building out a lake is when they actually check out projects like Hoodie. And then usually you hire a data engineering team. They check out projects like Hoodie, Debezium, Spark. They start building out the equivalent stack here. And, and we saw that a lot of these, uh, while, while there's a lot of success stories in the community around engineers who are able to make the transition, data engineers became platform engineers and be, picked up database concepts to and got to a point of operating, let's say, 6,000 tables, 7,000 tables for your company. There are success stories like that. There's also a lot of stories where, you know, they didn't make the cut, right? These projects fail because there is so much custom DIY build, like the end-to-end solutions are there to get a lake house. And also it takes a long time. It, and even the success scenario, it takes six to eight months to operationalize the lake. So we essentially wanted to say, hey, we already built three. Now, can we build a cloud service, which, which gives you this same ease of use, same time to market as the, the more closed cloud warehousing stack, but it can deliver drastically faster data freshness, cost, efficiency. It's future-proof because all of your data is in like an open format hoodie. And that was the basic idea. So can we provide like a similar experience and similar time to market? And we think this is the new kind of architecture that companies ultimately end up with today. But it's with something like One House, they would have the opportunity to start with that architecture on day one, instead of like signing up for a migration project two years down the line. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I come across that Dunchblock post when you talk about One House aim to be the bedrock for data infrastructure as the home of all your data. So I'm excited to see some of the pinpoint that you just mentioned in your previous answer got resolved with this new product, right? Enable congested delivery, automatic data infrastructure, and to help companies unlock saving at scale. Now, you also wrote this dedicated blog post talking about One House's commitment towards openness. So can you share about very briefly the plans for One House to continue contributing yeah. to the Woody community in a meaningful way? So, yeah, absolutely. Right. We want to be champions for our and not be controlling the project in unpredictable or sort of like undesirable ways, right? But by and large, that piece pretty much what we try to articulate there, I think, is I think openness is something that everybody wants, right? But today, without one house, it comes at a cost of you need to trade off either more cost for openness, either in terms of more engineers that you need to hire for DIY solutions or like a higher turnaround time for your projects. So we actually want to make it possible for you to be able to, let's say you get started with one house and for some reason you don't want to, like maybe you are in a regulated environment or you just hear like big enough that you want to build an in-house team anyway. For whatever reason, it should be possible to go back to running just vanilla hoodie, right? And then of course, there'll be some services that, that you'll have to build in-house, but by and large things should work. If you contrast this with some of the other vendors in a similar kind of like lake house format kind of space, the approach has been, oh, we'll have a thin format and there's all the marketing, all the pushes around, hey, this is the new format. But if you think about it, the format is a passive thing. It's a means to an end. What people really need is the ingestion service that is pumping data into your pre-tables. 
you need the compaction service, the clustering service, and these things are optimizing the storage layout for you to improve query efficiency. So our like commitment is that these things already exist in open source first of all, everybody. That's how we designed the project, connecting back to all our platform vision that we talked about before. And we want to keep it that way. We believe that as a business, we can add significant value by simply operating all this really well and taking that headache away from you. So our commitment is to make sure this is possible, that you start with one house, you can DIY hoodie, and then you're DIY hoodie for a year or two, and then like maybe your team leaves and there's attrition on your team or whatever, and then you should be able to pick up on the managed service again. So that is something that we're building with an eye towards. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup father. Uh, what valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about the mission of One House? Yeah, great question. I think, thankfully, so far, we've been actually been able to attract some really good talent because of Huri and the, the project and the, the awareness around the project that's been existing for four years now. We've been pretty fortunate on that. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about what I learned in terms of what to look for engineers and people that you bring on at this stage in case it's useful to others in the same boat. The one thing I'd be realized is that the technical skills, deep technical skills that, that are like super awesome in any role that you hire, but also having people who are fundamentally excited about the vision and want to actually make, let's say, manage lake how lakes a reality, right? Because we are fundamentally trying to bring about an, like a new data architecture. What we believe will be the data architecture that will become the main mainstay and what people will start with, right? So you need to like also be like really excited about that vision. And it needs to make sense to you, right? Not that it's like you need to. Right? And then we want people who are like leaning in and already aligned. Then what you have is a, a team who's focusing all the energy on thinking about how to make it happen. And that, that has a lot of compound effects. So we hired also a lot of people, basically filtered heavily for culture and this sort of like hunger to get this done, right? This, this vision delivered. Uh, that's something that I learned after my first like few hires. I, I quickly realized that this is what... Yeah, culture matters a lot and the hunger passionate for doing the work for critical venue as a startup. One house also backed by top tier VC firms such as Prelock Partners and Addition, some of the firms with stellar track record and deep experience in nurturing enterprise data startup. What fundraising advice could you give to founders who want to seek the right investors for the startups? Yeah, great question. And again, I think here we were pretty fortunate. It was actually a little bit more painful. I actually had PDF term sheets and stuff before even I had a green card to start a company. So I was really like, sitting on with VC dating for way too long because we're waiting for me, right? But on the flip side, this meant that I've pretty much spoken to almost a subset of VC firms here. And while what we found was that all of them are great, first of all, they'll always be helpful, but it's also on you to make sure, you know, uh, people matter and you need to make sure you feel like you can work with that person, right? You're going to be your VC partners or people that you're going to work with. They're going to stick around with you through thick and thin. So the people 
the relationships, those things matter a lot as well. It's two-way street, right? Like the VCs want to understand your vision for what you want to build in this space and understand the prospects of this. But for you as well, we spend a lot of time with different firms trying to understand who would help us more with go-to-market. Who knows this space and the customer profiles in the space really well? Who's connected to that sort of thing, the network and the expertise? And then like ultimately, would you want to work with this person? for the next four or five years, at least. Those are the things that should be top of mind, in my opinion. So if you're not at this part of the conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, which I'm ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the distributed database community whose work you admire. Well, I'll name four if you don't mind. So Leslie Lamport, all of the packs was like, all of the fundamental seminal work on distributed computing, just being all the the seminal database implementations that we went just altering the industry one after another. Daniel Abadi, of course, C-Store and like Michael Stonebreaker, I know like they're like, we can talk about one or the others. I think those are go-to-play names for me. Absolutely. Number two, name one book that you recommend for engineers to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, zero to one, I think definitely, I would definitely start with that. It's very real. It keep, the narration, everything keeps it very real. I did an audiobook, I think, and uh, it was, uh, and it's written from a founder's kind of lens, talking through like PayPal and like all of those stories. And I think that really eases the transition for you as an engineer into thinking about the bigger picture things. Yeah, after you started Bible. And then finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage that are engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, I would just encourage everybody to read all the seminal papers in the space. So this is something that I find myself doing less and less of. We be reading, not that medium articles aren't great, but I feel like I worry a little bit that we are spending lot like this, just with any other field, we even with in, in tech with social media and like all of these things, there's like way more content for you to digest. And I would encourage the early engineers to ground yourself on like hard facts by people with a lot of gray hair and experience in the field, read books and seminal papers and build up from there. From there, you can understand most things by differing with the previous thing that you know, but please get, read these things so that you have very solid foundations to start. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Vinod. I have such a good time chatting with you today, learning everything ranging from Education background in back in India, attempt it just in getting deep into database distributed engineering, your wide-reaching career working at Oracle, LinkedIn, Uber, Confluent, various thread building incremental processing work, consulting Apache Hoodie project, technical leadership lesson, and then your current journey with one house, just continuing on in the Hoodie roadmap and then bringing cutting edge cloud managed black house service to the enterprise. I'll be sure to include everything that we talk about today in the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to take a look, follow up with you and learn more about your journey with one house and who are you interested. So thanks a lot, Vina, and I hope you have a fabulous rest of your day. All right. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. This was really fun. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website 
at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.